Well, good morning, church. Thanks. Now, many of you who have known me for a while, you know that I am moving very quickly towards becoming a grumpy old man. Um, I am a very fast learner. I've often been very advanced for my age. I had a hip replacement about a month ago. And so I'm, again, I move down the continuum, continuum very quickly. Uh, I find, this is also a sign of being an old man, I find that I am increasingly annoyed um, at our culture. I don't understand kids. I don't get the TikTok thing. I don't get uh, social media. Uh, I use the phrase back in my day way too often. And uh, one of the things that, uh, that I'm prone to is a pervasive sense of cynicism. And if I let myself go down that path uh, too quickly, I can get pretty dismissive. And so I have to be pretty careful. Well, a few years ago, I found myself growing more and more cynical with how our culture approaches Christmas. And I remember sitting in a Barnes and Noble and just being annoyed, just looking around at the commercialization and it was so loud and it was so busy and there was no quietness. On top of that, I had picked up a magazine and was reading an article that the author was making a point that it's time for us to move past the ancient stories of Jesus and slide into the 21st century. And the article went on to talk about the mythology of Christ and the absurdity of the virgin birth, to which I was yelling in my head, of course it's absurd. That's what makes it a miracle. So clearly I'm not in the Christmas spirit at this moment. Well, the article went on to try to offer some naturalistic explanations for the star and other miraculous events. Uh, The point of a miracle is that it doesn't need a natural explanation, hence the term miracle and not accident. And so if God created the world, I suppose he reserves the right to break into it anytime he wants and to suspend the rules. And so at this point, I'm, I'm talking to the magazine, which I suppose is another sign of old age. And I heard a kid at a table next to me to say to his mom, Mom, we were singing a song in our Christmas musical. What is second birth? And I Hark the Herald was going on over the loudspeaker. And so I thought, okay, this kid's listening. And I smiled and laughed at the theology that keeps popping up in our culture. I mean, listen to the lyrics. I just want to put Hark the Herald up. You guys know the song, but there are about 20 sermons in this song. And I just want you to stop and appreciate that no matter how much our culture rages against the gospel, God just finds a way of planting it all over the place. It says, Hark the Herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hailed the incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that we no more may die, born to raise us from the earth, born to give us second birth. Now seriously, there's, that is loaded with theology. And you just find out that, that God in his wisdom, using the foolishness of man, is blasting this over the airwaves for an entire month. I mean, seriously, if you will stop and listen to all of the good theology, now there's some bad theology too, but all of the good theology that is on the airwaves, that is in department stores, it is really interesting to me. And I think it provokes questions. And I love to see this kid. He was probably 10. 
begin. He had ears that were tuned in and he realized, you know what? There's some things here I don't understand. What does it mean to be born again? And again, I can't, I, I don't imagine that he's not the first person to hear some of these Christmas songs and ask a few questions. I think Christmas lends itself to a little reflection. I think the incarnation, even for seasoned theologians, is an event that's shrouded in mystery. Who is this baby in a manger that we're celebrating? What are we celebrating? And why 2,000 years later are we still celebrating it? Why does he need to come from a virgin? How can he be 100% God and 100% man? Why does he need to come to earth at all? And questions are important. As a school teacher, I love questions. All kinds of students can give me answers, but when you know the next question, I know that you've already processed this and you've moved on to the next thing. And so I love them because I think they reveal ignorance. I think they're reflective. I think they reveal curiosity and even desire. And questions are universal. Everyone asks them. Every worldview is bombarded with questions. Is there a God? What's he like? What does he want? What happens when I die? Why am I here? And it takes guts to ask questions because sometimes the answers are scary. We come across a very scary question this morning. And the problem is, is that this question demands a response. And over the past two weeks, we've been discussing how disruptive the incarnation really is. It's a culmination of thousands of years of prophecies and promises. It is a realization of so much anticipation by the nation of Israel And yet it begins, and most of them don't even know. But it would not take long for this silent night to turn into a very threatening evening. And we will quickly see the fulfillment of Simeon's words that we looked at last week as Jesus causes the rising and falling of many. We witness this in today's text. The response to this one question, it lights a fuse in Israel that is going to be explosive. And so this morning, I want us to look at one of three responses people have to Christ revealed by how we answer and address this one question. So let's look again at the first four verses we read this morning. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, and here's the question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Where is the king? That question upsets everything. Now imagine King Herod sitting on his throne one evening, probably binge watching some Netflix. He's nice and comfortable. The doorbell rings. He goes to the door with his scepter and his crown, his robe. And somebody says, where's the king? Now I can imagine Herod looking down and saying, you're at the palace. I've got a crown. I have a scepter. I'm the king. And they say, no, 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 no. We mean the real king. Now that's a gutsy question to ask. One minute Herod is basking in his power, feeling secure. And then some stranger shows up and says, no, 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 where's the new king? We heard he landed. And I heard that now we need to come and worship him. We've seen his star. Now to us in America, this may not sound like a big deal. We don't really understand the concept of being under the rule of a king, but the ancient world did. This was a tremendously disruptive question. And so look at what these wise men actually say. And there's a little nuance here that may not come across to the casual reader. 
But verse 4 makes it clear what these magi are looking for when they say king of the Jews. Because it says, Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, this is Herod, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, in other words, for Christ is Messiah. Remember, Matthew is one of the gospels written to the Jewish people. And so they would have read that verse and they would have said, ooh, this is more than just an earthly king. Herod had been called king of the Jews by the Roman Senate for about 40 years, but no one had ever called him the Messiah. To the Jews, this term meant, and I'm just gonna read it, it says, the long-awaited, God-appointed ruler who would overcome all other rulers and bring about the end of history, establishing God's reign forever. Now, there's a lot there, so let me read it again. The Messiah means this, the long-awaited, God-appointed ruler who would overcome all other rulers and bring about the end of history, establishing God's reign forever. So it gives us a whole new meaning when we say Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. Christ is not his last name. It's more like a job description. Well, we don't know how these men get their information. You're reading the text, you're like, how did these people from the East understand what was going on? How did they know that a king was coming? They were not Jewish, but somehow they knew. Maybe they had studied the Old Testament. Maybe they had some Jewish friends who had mentioned it to them. It doesn't matter, but they traveled a long way and they wanted an answer and Herod got the message. These men were not looking for just another ruler. They were looking for some transcendent ruler. They were searching for the final king to end all other kings. And unlike Simeon, this is not something that Herod is looking for. It's apparent from the text that Herod doesn't even know where this Messiah is gonna come from. He's not a very good Jew, which is why he calls the scribes and priests. Well, they turn him to Matthew or Micah 5 and they read it to him, but they only give him part of the text that's recorded for us. And so I wanna read the entirety here because I think this is why it gets so unsettling for Herod. Starting in verse two. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. Now here's where it gets invasive for Herod. Whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. No wonder Herod is disturbed. What starts out as a question of where very quickly turns to a threatening question of who. The place is just an ignoble town of Bethlehem. And I'm sure Herod thought, well, this is easy enough. I can just send some soldiers down there. They can, you know, secure this rebellion. That's not the issue. The issue is the who. The who is entirely unnerving for the present king. Look at what is contained in that text. His coming is from of old, the ancient of days. He's the eternal king. He will shepherd Israel in the strength of the Lord. He's the Lord's anointed. He's an appointed king and he will be great to the ends of the earth. He is a universal king, not bound by boundaries. It's universal Herod was really only a puppet king anyway. He only ruled under the authority of Rome. He's really like a JV king. Well, upon hearing this, Herod has two choices. There are two things he can do. He can take off his crown, 
lay down his scepter, step down from his throne, give it up to the eternal king, beg for mercy, and say, my sword is yours. Or he can double down in efforts and take up arms. Well, Herod makes his choice. He rages all the more. He doesn't simply fortify an army for a coming rebellion. He seeks to stop it in its infancy. He kills every male child in Bethlehem under the age of two. He must defend his kingdom at all costs. It doesn't matter who gets crushed. Bethlehem was a very small community and it's estimated by historians that it may have contained 20 to 30 males under the age of two. And so you can imagine the sorrow that this little town would have experienced. Imagine what that would be like in the town of Franklin. It doesn't take long for Jesus to stir things up, does it? It wasn't peace on earth for everyone. Just his presence rattles things and he hasn't said or done anything yet. Now you may be sitting there thinking, what does this have to do with me? Well, here's the problem. The Bible tells us that Jesus is not just king of a temporal place in a temporal time, but he is the king of all places and all time. And if he is the eternal king, then he's still king today. And he's just as much a threat to our little kingdoms as he was, as he was to Herod's. Because many of us live our lives like we are little kings. We sit on our little thrones as if we are in control and we realize we can't even control our own actions most of the time. We certainly cannot control the world around us. The stock market, disease, death, and a million other things threaten to display our weakness. We too are puppet kings. We only exist and rule as under God and what he has given us to rule. Seriously, have you ever really stopped and considered how little control you have in life? Finances, health, emotions. There is nothing in our lives that we really stop and ponder that we have control over. And yet we build our tiny little kingdoms, sit on our tiny little thrones, shake our tiny little fists at God as if we rule our lives. It's the mantra of our day, is it not? I will be me, my body, my choice. I deserve to be happy. You can be anything that you want to be. You get to define your own reality. In fact, you are not even subject to basic biology anymore. We are sovereign little rebels we sit on our tiny little thrones and continue to rage against God. And I can't help but think of my two-year-old when they were little. And I always found this funny because two-year-olds would lay down the ground, they're angry and they just thrash about. And I remember just laughing. Like, you can't do anything. But in their little minds, they think they can. You turn around and walk away. I remember with Madeline, my favorite child, when she was little, she would get almost possessed and I'd grab her by the ankles and hold her out like she was a rattlesnake and I'd take her over to the hose and Maddie, calm down, and I'd splash her with the hose. She'd come out of it and then she'd start crying. But in those moments of raging, she thought she could take me, right? You've seen it with two-year-olds. This is what I see as Herod is raging and God is going, oh my goodness, you are so pathetic. But this is the rage that comes from our own hearts when our kingdoms are threatened. The Bible tells us that our kingdom is opposed to God and his law. So in essence, there is a little King Herod in all of us. And Romans 3 tells us that there are none righteous and no one seeks God. And you may say, no, 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 Nate, you don't understand. I know some people who, who seek God, but there's a difference between, between seeking God and seeking the things that he gives. People want peace on earth and they want love and they want forgiveness, but they want them on their terms. And that way, they're like gold diggers who marry for money, but they're not really in love with the person 
only what is given. Or they seek the God of their own creation and their own imagination, the God that they have made in their image. They create these powerless wooden and gold images that don't speak, they can't act, they don't make any demands, they certainly don't direct history. I mean, the irony of an idol is that it has to be made by the one who is going to worship it. There's a tremendous irony there. Idols are lame duck gods, and we love them because we can control them and shape them, and we can fashion them into what we want them to be. They don't make any demands on us. People are okay with a baby in a manger, but not the God who thunders and quakes from Mount Sinai. They love the concept of a God of love, but not a God of holiness that demands justice and hates sin. They love the God of comfort, but not the God of glory that no one can approach, manipulate, or bargain with. They love the God who offers salvation, but not the one who has to go to a cross to die for their sins because of what it reveals about them. They're okay with the God who asks for a little, but not the God who says, you are mine. I've bought you with a price. I will lay my demands upon you. I want your life and your allegiance. The God that so many seek is nothing more than a genie in a bottle that we just rub his belly when we have trouble. Until then, he needs to remain distant and not infringe upon my life. But at Christmas, this God comes near. And this is why we celebrate. And this is why Herod rages. Because he understands what is at stake more clearly than most of us do. This baby is a threat to everything that he has built and everything that he holds dear. And there's only room for one of them on the throne. Herod gets it. And there's a lesson, I think, for us. Because if Jesus really is God in the flesh, then we've lost all right to be in charge. If he's not, then he's just another crazy man with a God complex, and we shouldn't celebrate this event at all. I had a former student that I used to meet for coffee on a pretty regular basis, really smart young man. And uh, he had an A in Bible class, but he claimed to be an atheist. And so I asked him one day, I said, Chris, like, you have all the answers. Why do you claim to be an atheist? And I'll never forget what he said. He said, Mr. Gast, I like the stuff I like, and I like to do what I like to do. And if I acknowledge that the God of the Bible is real, then everything in my life has to change, and I just don't want it to. I'm not convinced that he doesn't exist. Frankly, I just don't want him to exist. And so in my mind, he doesn't. That's pretty insightful for an 18-year-old. That's a kid who gets it. And in some ways, and I don't know where he is now, but in some ways, I'm like, that guy is closer than many with this false idea of what it means to follow Christ. Well, Bob Dylan, the renowned theologian of the 60s and 70s, he once said, you gotta serve somebody. And he's right. And you may say, I don't have any religion. But you do. It's either humanism, materialism, moralism, selfism. More often than not, for me, it's natism. I've ordered my life under certain presuppositions and propositions that I've concluded are true. Hoping that this life is, when it's over, that I'm good enough to please some random God that I don't know exists by keeping a mysterious standard that I'm not sure even exists. Life is a moving target and so many are just crossing their fingers. But you don't have to do that anymore because you can find rest in the Messiah who has come. The incarnation did not occur to show us that God existed. Paul tells us that creation did that. The incarnation occurs to bring him near that we might know him. He is God. And while we will never know him fully, the incarnation reminds us that we can know him truly. Friends, the king has come. 
that phrase disrupts everything because if he has landed on the shore, then this is an invasion and there's now a new line in the sand. You either take a knee before him or you take up a sword against him, but there is no middle ground. The wise men seek him and bow down. Herod rebels. Not everyone can sing joy to the world on Christmas. Herod certainly could not. But there's another response in this text that I'd never noticed until this week, and it's equally sad. And it's the indifference of the scribes and the priests. These are the religious leaders of the day. They should have been combing the scriptures for clues and like Simeon, scanning the horizon, waiting for the coming of the Messiah. Now, I'm not sure I'd given it any thought before because it gets overshadowed by the infanticide of Herod. But notice that they just disappear from the story. It seems that they would have investigated a little bit further the meaning of this event. I mean, Israel had been longing for this since the time of Abraham. Well, they hear the account of the wise men and then they just go back to their lives. They have all the trappings of religion, but none of its reality. All the style, but none of its substance. They look the part, but their hearts are cold and they're so cold, they can't even bring themselves to investigate these claims. At least Herod cares enough to rage in defiance. Now, maybe these religious leaders are thrown off by the fact that the first people to recognize this are Gentiles, but this should have only added proof that it might be the Messiah because repeated throughout the prophecies of the Old Testament is the fact that the nations were going to come. Isaiah 63, nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. They're all over the place. Almost every prophecy ends with the nations coming to Israel but they don't care enough to even investigate it. The inactivity of these men is actually pretty staggering. Why did they not go and say, you know what? You guys are heading to Bethlehem. Do you mind if we go to investigate? Did they even walk outside, look up and be like, oh, there is a star. We should actually go see what this means. But sadly, I think this is where many in our culture find themselves over Christmas. Most don't have the intellectual honesty that, that my student had. Most will feign some sort of interest on Christmas and Easter as if we can patronize God, which is something that I always found very odd. I mean, how small and pathetic must God be to think that he is impressed and honored by you giving up an hour, one week a year to come and feign that you're interested in him, that you, you bombard him with platitudes and cliches that don't mean anything to you. God is not honored in such ways any more than my wife would be honored if once a year today is our anniversary, ironically. And if I just walked up today and was like, I love you. And then for 51 other weeks of the year, I never said anything. And I say, but I said, I love you. I bought you flowers. Is that not enough for you? She would say, no, it's not enough. But this is how we treat our God. This is the God we say, well, surely he'll be impressed if I just give him maybe Easter as well. What does God desire? A broken and contrite heart. That's what he wants. So as we ponder this event, and I hope you find some time this week to do that, we see that people are going to respond in anger like Herod. They're going to define, or they're going to respond with indifference like the priests. But there are those, and this is my plea to us, that we follow the example of the wise men and we hit our knees in worship. The wise men, the Gentiles, they follow the star. They find the Messiah and they worship him. They travel to Bethlehem, they fall down, they offer their gifts and they honor the ancient of days who has taken on flesh. 
they certainly did not understand all that was about to take place. In fact, they were looking through a veil that was pretty dark at this point. But they trusted and they rejoiced. And this is my favorite verse in this passage, verse 10. When they saw the star, and this is super redundant, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now look how redundant that is. They rejoiced with super joy, joyfully. I wish that was a posture of my heart every Sunday. There's something in these men that trusted that nothing was going to be the same again. The king had come, a light had shone, and there was going to be peace on earth. And so the question is, where is the king? And I pray that you'll consider what this little baby says and what he does on the cross and respond like those wise men. Seek him out, bow down, find salvation and live. You don't earn it. Just take a knee and receive it in faith as a sinner before him. Do you have the humility to let go of your kingdom and take hold of what Christ offers? That's the hope of Christmas. That's why we still celebrate this 2,000 years later because the king has come and he has come to save. The nations rage, but we rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Isaiah 25, 9 says, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Now I'm gonna close a little unconventionally, but I just wanna look at Psalm 2 because I think it captures the spirit of today's text. And it's a little long, but I want you to follow what is going on here because I think this summarizes exactly what is going on here in Matthew 2. I'll give you a minute to turn there. Those of you that want, otherwise it's on the screen. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then, we will, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Here's the response. Stop raging, verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. My favorite phrase in the Psalm. This is the invitation of Christmas. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, you probably never saw Christmas in that Psalm, but I think it captures it well. Kiss the son. That is the invitation that we are offered at Christmas. The king of kings says, stop raging. Stop shaking your fist. Stop striving for the rest that I offer. Find refuge in me and submit. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Fall on my mercy and grace. Let me accomplish the work. We looked at Isaiah last week. Remember it says all the, the boots and the bloody garments are being burned. Why? Because you don't need them anymore. That war has been fought by Christ our King. We rest in the work that Christ has done.
So we've got three responses. We can rage like Herod, and you see that all over our culture. We can be indifferent and just patronize ourselves that we're good enough. Or we can hit our knees, seeking out Christ, falling down in worship, and we can kiss the sun. And so I want that to be a phrase that you ponder this week as you, as the seven days work our way a week from today to that Christmas morning, and we behold that baby in a manger, kiss the sun, and find refuge in him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.